Chapter 16, 17, 18, and 19 of The Story of Joan of Arc by Andrew Lang. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 The Trial of the Maid. As Joan was a woman and a prisoner of the church, when the English had handed her over to the priests, she ought to have been kept in a gentle prison and with only women about her. But the English were very cruel. They had a kind of cage made, called a hooch, and put in a strong room in the castle of Rouen. In this cage they kept Joan, with chains on her legs, which were fastened to a strong post or beam of the bed. Five common soldiers kept watch in the room, day and night. The eyes of men were always on the most modest of girls. We see how much they feared her. They wished to have her proved a witch, and one who dealt with devils, to take away the shame of having been defeated by a girl, and also to disgrace the French king by making the world believe he had been helped by a sorceress and her evil spirits. In truth, if you read Henry the Sixth, Part One, by Shakespeare, you will see just what the English thought about the maid. Shakespeare, of course, did not know the true story of Joan, and he makes her say abominable things, which not even her enemies brought up against her at her trial. If Shakespeare wrote the play, he did not care a penny for the truth of the story. He sends Joan to Bordeaux, where she never was in her life, and makes fiends, that is, her saints, appear to her and show that they will help her no longer. So she offers her very soul as a sacrifice for the sake of France. Quote, then take my soul, my body, soul and all, before that England give the French the foil. Unquote. Later she turns on the English and says what she might have said with truth. Quote, I never had to do with wicked spirits, but you that are polluted with your lusts, stained with the guiltless blood of innocence, corrupt and tainted with a thousand vices, because you want the grace that others have, you judge it straight a thing impossible to compass wonders but by help of devils. Unquote. The English had devils on their own side, the cruel priests and Bishop Koshan, whom they had promised to make Archbishop of Rouen, but he never got it. For three months these people examined Joan every day, sometimes all shouting at her at once, so that she said, Gentlemen, if you please, one at a time. She had no advocate, who knew the law, to help her to defend herself. But once, when she appealed to the Council of Basil, a council of the church which was then sitting, they bade her be silent, and told the clerk who took down everything in writing, in French, not to write down her appeal. There is nothing about this in the Latin book of the trial, translated from the French, but in the French copy made in court you can see the place where the clerk's pen has stopped at the words, and she appeals, et requiere, in French. He was going to write the rest. Now she had a right to appeal, and as the clergy at the Council of Basel were of many countries, they would not have taken the English side, but pronounced Joan innocent. The bishops and clergy of the loyal French party at Portiers, before she went to the war, had declared her innocent and a thing of God, after a long examination of her life up till April 1429. Joan often asked her judges to send for the Portier's book, 
where they would find answers to their questions about her early days. But they vexed her about everything, even about the fairy tree on which the children used to hang their garlands. Their notion seems to have been that the fairies were her helpers, not the saints, and that the fairies were evil spirits. Joan had shown that, in war and politics, she was wiser than the soldiers and statesmen. She went straight at the work to be done, to beat the English and to keep attacking them before they got back their confidence. At her trial she showed that she was far wiser than the learned priests. They tried to prove that she was helped by fairies. She said that she did not believe there were any fairies, and though I would not say that there are none, there certainly are not so many, or so busy and powerful, as the priests supposed. They kept asking her about the prophecies of Merlin the wizard. She thought nothing of Merlin the wizard. She vowed to speak truth in answer to questions, but she would not answer questions about her saints and voices except when they gave her permission. The judges troubled her most about the secret of the king, and what she had told him about that before she went to the wars. You remember that the king had secretly prayed to know whether he really was the son of the late king or not, and that Joan told him of his prayer, and told him that he was the son of the late king, and had the right to be king himself. But she would tell the judges nothing about all this matter. If she had, the English would have cried everywhere, You see, he is not certain himself that he is what he pretends to be. Our king of England is the only king of France. Joan would not betray her king's doubts. She never would tell what happened. At last she told a simple parable. An angel came with a rich crown for the king. But later she explained that by the angel she meant herself, and that by the crown she meant her having him crowned at Reims. They never could get the king's secret out of her. At last they said they would put her to the torture. They took her to a horrible vault, full of abominable instruments for pinching and tearing and roasting and screwing the bodies of men. There stood the executioner, with his arms bare and his fire lit and all his pincers and ropes and pulleys ready. Now will you tell us, they said. Brave men had turned faint with terror in that vault and had said anything that they were asked to say, rather than face the pain. There was a marshal of France, Gilles de Ray, a nobleman who fought besides Joan at Orléans, at Les Tourelles, at Jargeau, at Pathay, and at Paris, and who carried the sacred vessel which the angel brought long ago with holy oil at the king's coronation. Later this man was accused by the Inquisition of the most horrible crimes, among other things, he was said to have sacrificed children to the devil, and to have killed hundreds of little boys for his own amusement. But the hundreds of little boys were not proved to be missing, and none of their remains were ever found. Gilles de Ray denied these horrible charges. He said that he was innocent, and for all we know he was. But they took him to the torture vault, and showed him the engines of torment and he confessed everything, so that he might be put to death without torture, which was done. 
Joan did not fear and turn faint. She said, Torture me if you please, tear my body to pieces. Whatever I say in my pains will not be true, and as soon as I am released I will deny that it was true. Now go on. Many priests wished to go on, but more, even of these cruel enemies, said, No, they would not torture the girl. What a brave lass! Pity she is not English, one of the English lords said, when he saw Joan standing up against the crowd of priests and lawyers. Remember that for six weeks, during Lent, Joan took no food all day. There she stood, starving and answering everybody, always bravely, always courteously, always wisely, and sometimes even merrily. They kept asking her the same questions on different days, to try to make her vary in her answers. All the answers were written down. Once they said she had answered differently before, and when the book was examined, it proved that there was some mistake in the thing, and that Joan was in the right. She was much pleased, and said to the clerk, If you make mistakes again, I will pull your ears. They troubled her very much about wearing boys' dress. She said that when among men in war it was better and more proper. She was still among men, with soldiers in her room day and night, which was quite unlawful. She should have had only women about her. She would not put on women's dress while she was among men, and was quite in the right. She could hear her voices in court, but not clearly on account of the noise. Once I suppose she heard them, for she suddenly said in the middle of an answer to a question about the letters which were written for her when she was in the wars, Before seven years are past the English will lose a greater stake than they have lost at Orleans. They will lose everything in France. Before the seven years were out they lost Paris, a much greater stake than Orleans, as Paris was the chief town and the largest. They went on losing till they lost everything in France, even all that they had held for hundreds of years. The judges insisted that she should submit to the church. Joan asked nothing better. Take me to the Pope, and I will answer him, for I know and believe that we should obey our Holy Father, the Pope, who is in Rome. Or she would answer the council of the whole church at Basel, but as I said, the bishop caution stopped the clerk when he was writing down the words. The judges said, We are the church. Answer us and obey us. But, of course, they were not the church. They were only a set of disloyal French priests who sided against their own country and helped the English. End of chapter 16 Chapter 17 How the Priests Betrayed the Maid at last, on May 24th, 1431, they determined to force her to acknowledge herself in the wrong, and to deny her saints. On that day they took her to the graveyard of the Church of St. Ouen. Two platforms had been built. On one stood the wretched Cochon with his gang. Joan was placed on the other. There was also a stake with faggots for burning Joan. They had ready two written papers. On one it was written that Joan would submit to them and wear woman's dress. 
and the other was a long statement that her saints were evil spirits and that she had done all sorts of wrong things. She was told that if she would sign the short paper and wear woman's dress, she would be put in gentle prison with women about her instead of English soldiers. Seeing the fire ready, Joan repeated the short form of the words and made her mark, smiling, on the piece of paper that they gave her. But it was the paper with the long speech, accusing her of crimes and denying her saints. This is what we are told. But later she showed that she thought she had denied her saints, so it is not easy to be quite sure of what happened. It is certain that Kaushan broke his word. She was not taken away from her cruel prison and the English soldiers as was promised. She was given woman's dress, but as they were determined to make her relapse, that is, return to the sin of wearing man's dress, for then they could burn her, they put her boy's dress in her room, and so acted that she was obliged to put it on. It is a horrid story, not fit to be told, of cruelty and falseness. "'Now we have her,' said Kaushan to an Englishman. They went to her and asked her if the voices had come to her again. "'Yes.' "'What did they say?' St. Catherine and St. Margaret told me that I had done very wrong when I said what I did to save my life, and that I was damning myself to save my life. Then you believe that the voices were the voices of the saints? Yes, I believe that, and that the voices come from God. And she said that she did not mean ever to have denied it. On the day of her burning, the bishop and the rest went to Joan again, and wrote out a statement that she left it to the church to say whether her voices were good or bad. The church has decided that they were good, and has given Joan the title of Venerable, which is the first step towards proclaiming her to be one of the saints. Whatever the voices were, she said they were real, not fancied things. But this paper does not count for the clerk who took all the notes refused to go with the bishop to see Joan that time, saying that it was no part of the law, and that they went as private men, not as judges, and he had the courage not to sign the paper. He was an honest man, and thought Joan a good girl, unlawfully treated, and was very sorry for her. He never wept so much for any sorrow in all his life, and for a month he could not be quiet for sorrow, and he bought a book of prayers and prayed for the soul of the maid. This honest man's name was Gilbert Manchin. End of chapter 17 Chapter 18 The End of the Maid They burned her cruelly to death in the marketplace of Rouen, with eight hundred soldiers round the stake, lest any should attempt to save her. They had put a false accusation on a paper cap and set it on her head. It was written that she was heretic, relapsed, apostate, idolatrous. This was her reward for the bravest and best life that was ever lived. She came to her own, and her own received her not. There was with her a priest who pitied her, not one of her judges, Brother Isambert de la Pierre of the Order of St. Augustine, 
Joan asked him to bring her a cross and to hold it up before her eyes while she was burning. Saith, moreover, that while she was in the fire, she ceased never to call loudly on the holy name of Jesus. Always, too, imploring ceaselessly the help of the saints in paradise, and more, when the end was now come, she bowed her head and gave up her spirit, calling on the name of Jesus. The saints had said to her long before, Bear your torment lightly, thence shall you come into the kingdom of paradise. So died Joan the maid. It is said by some who were present that even the English cardinal, Beaufort, wept when he saw the maid die. Crocodile's tears. One of the secretaries of Henry the Sixth, who himself was only a little boy, said, We are all lost. We have burned a saint. They were all lost. The curse of their cruelty did not depart from them. Driven by the French and Scots from province to province, from town to town, the English returned home, tore and rent each other, murdering their princes and nobles on the scaffold, and slaying them as prisoners of war on the field, and stabbing and smothering them in chambers of the tower, York and Lancaster devouring each other. The mad Henry the Sixth was driven from home to wander by the waves at St. Andrews, before he wandered back to England and the dagger stroke. These things were the reward the English won after they had burned a saint. They ate the bread and drank the cup of their own greed and cruelty, all through the Wars of the Roses. They brought shame upon the name which time can never wash away. They did the devil's work and took the devil's wages. Soon Henry the Eighth was butchering his wives and burning Catholics and Protestants, now one, now the other, as the humor seized him. Joan had said to the archbishop at Reims that she knew not where she would die or where she would be buried. Her ashes were never laid in the earth. She had no grave. The English, that men might forget her, threw her ashes into the sea. There remains no relic of Joan of Arc, no portrait, nothing she ever wore, no cup or sword or jewel that she ever touched. But she is not forgotten. She never will be forgotten. On every eighth of May, the day when she turned the tide of English conquest, a procession in her honor goes through the streets of Orleans, the city that she saved. And though the Protestants at the Reformation destroyed her statue that knelt before the fair cross on the bridge, she has statues in many of the towns in France. She was driven from the gate of Paris, but near the place where she lay wounded in the ditch is her statue, showing her on horseback in armor. End of chapter 18 Chapter 19 The Second Trial of the Maid The rich and the strong had not paid a franc or drawn a sword to ransom or to rescue Joan. The poor had prayed for her, and the written prayers which they used may still be seen. Probably the others would have been glad to let Joan's memory perish, but to do this was not convenient. If Joan had been a witch, a heretic, an impostor, an apostate, as was declared in her condemnation, 
than the king had won his battles by the help of a heretic and a witch. Twenty years after Joan's martyrdom, when the king had recovered Normandy and Rouen, he thought it time to take care of his own character, and to inquire into the charges on which she was found guilty. It is fair to say that he could not do this properly till he was master of Rouen, the place at which she was tried. Some of the people concerned were asked questions, such as the good clerk Manchon and Beaupere, one of the judges. He was a man of some sense. He did not think that Joan was a witch, but that she was a fanciful girl, who thought that she saw saints and heard voices, when she neither saw nor heard anything. Many mad people hear voices which are also mad. Joan's voices were perfectly sane and wise, and told her things that she could not have known of herself. Not much came of this examination, but two years later, Joan's mother and brothers prayed for a new trial to clear the character of the family. It is the most extraordinary thing that up to this year, 1452, Joan's brothers and cousins seem to have been living on the best terms with the woman who pretended to be Joan, and said that she had not been burned but had escaped. This was a jolly kind of woman, fond of eating and drinking and playing tennis. Why Joan's brothers and cousins continued to be friendly with her, after the king found her out, because she did not know his secret, is the greatest of puzzles, for she was a detected impostor, and no money could be got from the connection with her. Another very amazing thing is that in 1436 an aunt of the Duke of Burgundy, Madame de Luxembourg, entertained the impostor, while the whole town of Orleans welcomed her and made her presents, and ceased holding a religious service on the day of Joan's death, for here, they said, she was quite well and merry. Moreover, the town's books of accounts at Orleans show that they paid a pension to Joan's mother as Mother of the Maid, till 1452, when they say, Mother of the Late Maid. For now, as Joan's family were trying to have her character cleared, they admitted that she was dead, burned to death in 1431, as, of course, she really was. There are not many things more curious than this story of the false maid. However, at last Joan's family gave up the impostor, and five years later she was imprisoned and let out again, and that is the last we hear of her. The new trial lingered on, was begun and put off, and begun again in 1455. Calchon was dead by this time, nothing could be done to him. Scores of witnesses came and told the stories given at the beginning of this book, showing how Joan was the best and most religious of girls, and very kind to people even more poor than herself, and very industrious in knitting and sewing and helping her mother. Everyone who was still alive that had known her in the wars came, like d'Alencon and Dunois and Dolan and her confessor, and many others came, and told about Joan in the wars, how brave she was and modest, and the stories of what she had suffered in prison and about the unfairness of her trial were repeated. The end was that the court of inquiry declared her trial to have been full of unlawfulness and cruelty, and they abolished the sentence against her, and took off all the shameful reproaches, and ordered a beautiful cross to be erected to her memory in the place where she was burned to death.
So here ends the story of the life and death of Joan the Maid. End of the Story of Joan of Arc by Andrew Lang Recording by Tim Freeberg Renwick